Hello, and welcome to my office. I'm Dr. Lucy McBride, and this is Beyond the Prescription, the show where I talk with my guests like I do my patients, pulling the curtain back on what it means to be healthy, redefining health as more than the absence of disease. As a primary care doctor for over 20 years, I've realized that patients are much more than their cholesterol and their weight. Our stories live in our bodies. I'm here to help people tell their story and for you to imagine and potentially get healthier from the inside out. You can subscribe to my weekly newsletter at lucymcbride.com newsletter and to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So let's get into it and go beyond the prescription. Today's guest is the multi-hyphenate media mogul Soledad O'Brien. Soledad is an award-winning journalist, documentarian, and producer. She has spent her career championing the stories of marginalized communities. She's been the recipient of three Emmy Awards, the George Foster Peabody Award and the Alfred I. DuPont Award for her reporting work. Most recently, she executive produced The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, a documentary expanding the simplified narrative of the mother of the civil rights movement. Soledad, I'm thrilled to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure. It's so nice to see you. Let's talk about this new documentary. When I was a kid, I learned about Rosa Parks as this important figure of the 20th century, but only in Black History Month in February. We had this sort of narrow picture of who she was, this woman who sat on a bus. Why is it so important to tell the full story of this important woman? I think first and foremost, just being historically accurate is important. And I think Rosa Parks was very inspiring, even in that little narrow story that we have of her. Rosa Parks sat on the bus. There was a bus boycott. It was eventually resolved. Everybody went back to normal, which is completely inaccurate. Her story is actually far more inspiring than that little narrow version gives you. And then I guess the third part for me would be, I'm always curious why people are comfortable with a view that is very narrow and small. Like there's plenty of opportunity and it wasn't very hard to figure out who Rosa Parks was. She wrote a lot. She talked a lot. She wasn't hiding it. It wasn't like the secret life of Rosa Parks. She was very open about her tremendous affection for Malcolm X and the Black Panthers. And so, you know, this was a woman who was a, a rebel in a lot of ways, a radical in some ways, and it wasn't hidden. And yet everyone wanted the narrative to really be something like a little grandmother. One day her feet hurt. And she decided to sit on the bus and accidentally somehow just stumbled upon becoming the mother of the movement. What a surprise, the end. In fact, when the New York Times wrote about her death, they basically called her the accidental mother of the movement. And you're like, literally nothing accidental about Rosa Parks, who from her childhood had tremendous antipathy toward white people, partly because of the way that her grandfather and her family was treated by the KKK. And so there was really very little that was accidental. She stumbled into absolutely nothing. The part that I've always been most fascinated by is why that version? Why does that make us comfortable? How do we leverage and use narratives sometimes and frame people in ways that make us comfortable but don't actually happen to be the truth? As someone who's reported on important stories that touch on race, class, wealth, poverty, opportunity, what was it like for you personally reporting on her? 
our documentary, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks, comes from a book by the exact same name, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. It's written by a professor whose name is Jean Theo Harris. And so it really was a process of reading the book and beginning to realize a little bit like, oh, we've been had. (laughs) this, This is just, wow, I had no idea. You feel a little foolish, actually, since I do a lot of work covering race and class and a lot on civil rights. I knew, for example, that a lot of women in the civil rights movement were not recognized fully. That was well known and had been reported on a lot. But I think specifically the story of Rosa Parks, as Jean Theo Harris laid it out in her book, was absolutely fascinating. So our director, Johanna Hamilton, was actually on Twitter. And every year, Jean Theo Harris would post, like, here's all the things that you don't know about Rosa Parks. And Johanna said, you know, by the time she got to number 25, of which 24 things Johanna said she had no idea about, she thought, this is an amazing topic. Then she reached out to Yoruba Richin, who is our other director. And so eventually the project came to my production company. But the book, I think, was such an eye-opener for everybody, really just being blown away by the person you thought you knew, in fact, the person you were pretty sure you knew pretty well, suddenly having a really interesting and dynamic and rebellious life that was never really reported on. Jean Theo Harris's scholarship is phenomenal, so I highly recommend to everyone to read the book. And then she's also been able to supported by the Ford Foundation, do a lot of work for middle grade students, middle school students, kind of helping them understand uh, a curriculum about Rosa Parks as well, which I think is really important. So, you know, I think she, in a lot of ways, has done like the yeoman's work on the project. Historically, I mean, the deeper reporting on communities of color has been sort of relegated to like special reporting or the unseen stories of being Black in America, like the documentary series you produced, or being Latin in America. You talked about the CNN series called Uncovering America, as if the network was uncovering some secret world when actually these are our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, our communities. Hopefully people that they had hired at some point. Hopefully people they had hired and who were working on producing the very series that it was, quote, uncovering. Why is it so important? to report on regular human beings of color in an accurate, historically true way? I think I've always enjoyed reporting on communities that don't get a lot of coverage for two reasons. Number one, it's sort of fertile ground. I mean, (laughs) most of my docs, I don't run into other people while I'm reporting the doc. So that's probably the first thing. The second part is, again, I don't know how we're supposed to learn about each other and understand each other if we don't have accurate stories that are narratives that are just how people live today. I think it's important to have a real record of what's happening in the world, what's happening in these times, who are the people responsible for the things that we're seeing. I mean, I just like accuracy. I think for both of those reasons, for me, it's always been interesting. I like that I don't bump into other people, but it's also sometimes very frustrating that you don't bump into other people, that no one has thought these stories are important. And there's so much data. And I mean, when we did Black in America, we did it for nine seasons. There were so many interesting stories that just really were underreported. And that's a shame if you're a news organization. I mean, really, it's an absolute shame. I was glad that we got to add to the volume of stories that exist. And you think about how people learn these days. I mean, so much of it is through the media and so much of it is through storytelling. I mean, you can 
teach a kid during Black History Month, you know, here are the stats on this figure or here's how racism in America plays out. When these stories need to be told like throughout the year, they need to be told honestly and they need to be woven into the fabric of kids' education. You're pointing to a weird thing right, which is on one hand, we do have these slots for women's history and black history and Latinx history. And yet I think the real goal is to say, well, it's all American history, but because it's not equally reflected, you end up carving out these little chunks and being happy that, wow, that was an interesting story that we got to run in February or wow, September, October, we got to highlight contributions of Latinos and Hispanics, but partly because we don't have it woven into the fabric of like, it feels like there's American history and then there's all these other people contributed to, but kind of are left out of the narrative. So I, I think you're right. It's a weird thing because in a way it's a weird in, right? These stories get to live at all. But it's also sometimes I feel like it's a bit of a loss because it gets chunked into a little section that in some ways is easily ignorable. If you miss what happens in February, you might miss a lot of Black people history. And again, it's American history, but I think we've seen it ends up just not existing in the common narrative. So it is the double-edged sword in a way. Soledad, where do you get your drive? Where do you get your courage to tell stories that aren't often told? You know, I don't know that it's a courage. I mean, I personally wouldn't describe it as courage. I think every journalist looks for stories that are interesting, that's in an unmined area. And then when you start realizing that they're really interesting and no one's there, I think you become bolstered by that. Probably the courage part is in constantly going back, even when people don't think it's necessarily a win. I remember actually right before I left CNN, I had pitched to one of my bosses doing a doc. We had a unit called In America, Black in America, Gay in America, Latino in America, Muslim in America. I, by the way, did not name those because I think I would have been more creative. But I said to him, you know, I think it'd be really interesting to look at poverty in America. At that moment, there were so many stories, and this would have been 10 years ago, about people who were living in their cars and how there were so many people who were deep into poverty or very close to the edge of poverty who were working full-time jobs. You know, and in his head, I think he thought of people who were poor as kind of like bums riding the rails with like a little backpack or, you know, it's just a really bizarre take on what we know about the homeless population, right? Mostly women and children, lots of domestic violence. Like there were so many interesting elements that I thought we could explore and how that correlates to poverty in this country. And his answer was, ew, who'd want to look at that? And so, I mean, I think he was really saying, you know, the visual, because to him, it's people in rags and bare feet versus what I think most people who know anything about poverty would say, it's the mom sitting next to you on the subway. It's the kid who's in your kid's class. They look exactly like you. They just go sleep in their car or they take showers at the gym or they figured out how to make it work because they're couch surfing. The courage part is in constantly going back and saying, I think there's a story here. I think there's something to do. And I think also for me, a bit courage to be able to leave when you recognize that if those are the folks who are in leadership, it probably is not a place you want to be because it's disheartening to work with people who are in news, right? Who, who should be looking for like, wow, a compelling story who just don't see it. That part is frustrating. So maybe the courage wasn't saying like, yeah, this is a really good red flag to recognize and to I've heard you talk about that first job you had as an on-air reporter in San Francisco. You overheard your colleagues talking about you, the quote, affirmative action hire. That must have felt kind of horrible. 
you know what? By then you're kind of used to it. It did not feel horrible. That's, that's was, almost worse. It's like you just felt expected. I don't know that I'd say expected. I would say you feel silly. I walked up and I was trying to, I was new. So I was trying to like get in on the conversation a little bit. And then you're in the middle and they're like, oh, they're talking about some new hire who's the affirmative action hire. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> it's me. It's awkward. I guess the feeling for me was like, oh, that's awkward. That is definitely awkward. I have put my little nose into this conversation and now everybody stopped talking. So it didn't feel horrible at all. I mean, it was a bit, you know, like icky and a little bit laughable because it was just so awkward. And I think that that's probably more awkward for them than for me. I guess a long time ago, I really got pretty good about deciding which things that I would take on and which things I would not take on. And somebody else's view of me you realize pretty quickly, it's just not possible to carry that burden with you if they're not a loved one, right? Who's giving you good feedback on something. I definitely just shrugged it off. It was more embarrassing and awkward than anything else. When I've talked with my Black patients over the course of 2020, certainly during the George Floyd murder and events thereafter, we talk about, you know, having to choose what you're going to be angry about. You know, you can't be angry all the time, right? I mean, you can, but it shows up in your physical health. It shows up in your mental health. It shows up in relationships. You know, I talk about this with any patient, but particularly in that summer of 2020, I talked a lot with my patients of color about sort of being more deliberate about where you put your emotional energy, because if you're angry all the time and not channeling that anger into some other shape, then it can really be detrimental to our health. And I see that. I mean, we talk about generational trauma in medicine, particularly for Black people in America. I think it's not a coincidence we see disproportionate amounts of hypertension and obesity and diabetes for numerous reasons. One of them is emotional stress. How do you manage the emotional challenges of experiencing overt racism as a journalist of color? You know, I think I've always been pretty good about my channeling. I think for everybody, part of the strategy is having really good friends around you. Because one of the things that I think is most insidious, and as a medical doctor, I'm sure you could tell me if I'm right or I'm wrong, is the gaslighting part of it, right? You're not, did that person just say, did they just say that? Did I hear them just say that? I mean, again, back to that conversation, right? You're like, oh, did that, did that just happen? Do they mean me? Am I, you know, it's that part where you lose your mind a little because you're just not sure in a way. Sometimes someone coming up to you and being very overtly racist is, is very clarifying. You know, you're like, got it. I can see where you are. I understand this entire thing. I think for a lot of people, and I hear this a lot from women who are victims of domestic violence too, right? It's the gaslighting part where they're just not sure. So you need to run it by someone to say, can I run this by, am I crazy? And it's that crazy making part that I think is the most destabilizing and the most stressing. And then as you're a person who complains about it or over a glass of wine, you're whining to your friends about it. You become the crazy one, right? You 100%. That someone has said you are. And you feel like I recognize I'm spiraling the drain here. But I mean, that to me has been the part that's most insidious. And as I've gotten older, I think I've just gotten better at being very clear about what I want and what I need. And also a lot of my work relies on data. So I have a lot of conversations about, let's look at, for example, you know, when people say, you know, we're really our diversity hiring, but I'm like, great, let's pull out the numbers. Let's talk about your diversity hiring. Okay. So it looks like actually you're not doing much and no one's really in charge of it. So if you want me here, here's what I'm going to need. Or the answer might be, if you don't care about it, not a problem. Then I don't care about it too. And I won't be the face of it. 
let's all just be real about what we're doing. But what I won't do is be the face of a thing that nobody actually believes. Like we just won't traffic in bullshit. And it helps to be self-employed, right? As you get older, you begin to be able to just have those conversations and walk away nicely. It's not my job to help people figure out their like interest in diversity at all, but I'm more than happy to do the stuff that I'm interested in. When I was younger, that's the kind of conversation I would have had with a girlfriend. I just can't believe, you know, they're having me do this. They keep saying it's important. And yet on the other hand, everybody's telling me, listen, don't make black in America too black. (laughs) Now I'd be like, listen, here's the conversations I'm having. Here's what I think we need to do. I think as you get older, you get a little more sane, but also maybe a little more cynical. It's not a shocker. It's not surprising. It's not, oh my gosh, are they talking about me? You're like, yes, you're welcome to talk about me. Here's what I'm going to need out of this relationship if we're going to go ahead with this project. And that's a nice feeling. It's one of the benefits of getting older, I agree, where you can be more direct and more honest and more open. And instead of tiptoeing around what you think other people are thinking or saying, you just ask. And it can be disarming and really healthy to sort of ask people, what do you actually mean? And some of the gaslighting isn't even intentionally mean. I'll give you an example. I was working on a project that had multiple parts. So the first part we did was a lot about diversity and the crew, 100% white guys, actually. Super great. And I said, great guys. And I said, this is great. However, this show is about diversity. And I personally feel uncomfortable as I invite people in. And also, like, we should be doing what we value. The project is about diversity. So my recommendation is that we actually reach out and hire more diverse people behind the scenes. And everyone's like, yes, that's such a good idea. Oh my gosh, you're absolutely right. Second day, same thing. And it was all new crew. And I was like, oh, huh. I thought we had a really good conversation and yet none of it was really heard. So one of the people on the team followed up and had another conversation about like, okay, let's start sticking some numbers to it. And again, everybody's great. There's nobody who was a jerk. There was no one who was difficult. All good-hearted, kind people. Second day, we started sticking some percentage. Like, well, let's aim for in the population, how it looks. Let's make those percentages in the room that we're in. Since we're in a, a big city, that's quite a diverse city, right? It's not hard to find people. Third day, get there. And we have more diversity. Not a ton, but a good chunk. All entry-level positions. So everybody is the coffee fetcher on our business, the production assistant level. And I'm like, well, that's a start. But again, I guess I didn't clarify, right? Like, I think it's good to have people. That's a plus. And everybody tried. Fourth one, you know, like that's the situation where the person who was in charge of the hiring, salt of the earth, just didn't see it like how I saw it. So imagine if you do have someone who is trying to undermine, who disagrees, I got better by the fourth go around to say, so I think for the next round, here's what I'm going to need to see. And here's what we need to see as a group, because these are our values. That said, if someone wants to step up and say, actually, those are not our values, totally fine. Let me know, because I'll stop moving forward on projects that I think are reflecting our values. It's sometimes not even gaslighting. It's just how much work it is to hold people accountable. And it's much easier, honestly. And if I were younger, I would have just kept my mouth shut. I like the job. I like the people. Pays well. You know, I would have just been like, I don't hire people. Not my job. (laughs) And as you get older, you think, well, actually, since I'm in a position of a little teeny weeny bit of power, I'm going to say what I need to say. And again, I think that's a real upside of getting older. But I think it also helps protect your mental health a bit. 
you know, you do feel like when you're given the opportunity to be in the room, to be around the table, to do something, you take advantage of that and you say something. Maybe that gets you knocked off the next project. I don't know. Again, when you're older, it's certainly less scary. I think you're right. It's so much easier to be silent when you see some injustice or you feel uncomfortable even. I think, you know, no matter who you are, human beings, we don't naturally gravitate to controversy. But ultimately, if you take the long view, speaking up, being more honest about what you see and what you need is really the way we maintain mental health. When often people ask me, so, you know, how can people act like allies? I often say, wouldn't it be nice if it were a white guy who said, listen, I noticed we're doing a show about diversity. And I, as a middle-aged white dude, feel kind of uncomfortable that all these diverse people are coming through our doors. And the first thing they see is a team that's not diverse at all in a city like New York City, which is quite a diverse city. That would be helpful, I think. I think sometimes that advice feels contradictory, but I find it really helpful when someone who's not me says, well, you know, I actually think we should have more women. I think we should have more people of color. I think we should have, you know, they're like, yes, thank you. Thank you. People in this landscape right now, we're kind of like marinating in a, a soup of like fear and anger in 2022 post pandemic, which has been this sort of collective trauma. I think people are afraid of saying the wrong thing, even allies. But at the expense of being silent in the face of overt examples of racism or just more subtle examples of what you're talking about, that more insidious kind of like baked in just prejudice that's like part of our everyday life in America. And I think that's the part that's also hard, right? The exhaustion. Not for me, it's not really the anger. It's just being tired. Like, oh, my God. Here I am in a meeting. Why can't I be the one who talks about the Halloween decorations? Why do I have to be the one who says maybe blackface is not what we should be doing this year? You know, that kind of thing where you and I've had this conversation with lots of executives of color, actually, who would say, you know, around the table, they'd love to be the ones who are talking about the issues that don't involve race. Why do you have to be the person to talk about racism? Why shouldn't it be me? Why shouldn't it be the white people at the table? And then if you get upset about that, then you're the angry person of color at the table. That's the emotional fallout of the fact that people are afraid to speak up. You should be able to talk about boring, mundane, like, hey, maybe we should get a new coffee maker in the break room. I mean, for the love of God. Soledad, you're so, so successful. And you've been called on social media not a journalist, you're an activist. It's a shame that the word activism is weaponized against people who have earned the right to have an opinion. I do think it is a weaponized word. Like, I don't know that I would say even that I'm an activist about that. I guess I'd say I just like to call, I like to point out bullshit and it's not very hard to do it. And we see it a lot. So I'm very busy in my little free job on Twitter. I also like to explain to people because I've worked for a long time in journalism, framing and narrative and understanding. Do you understand when you call a white supremacist dapper? Dapper is not a word that is neutral, right? If you wanted to describe what he was, was wearing, you say John Doe was wearing a jacket and a tie. He was wearing slacks and dress shoes and a hat, right? You'd say, okay, I have now got a picture in my head. When you call him dapper, you wait the discussion of like, oh, 
he's handsome, he's sexy, he's interesting, he's dynamic, right? So I always like to ask people, like, why do you think someone would, who's reporting on a white supremacist, why would you call him dapper? What is the goal in that? What is the point of that? And just pointing that out so people can see how words are used and narratives are framed, I think it's a good thing to learn if you're a news consumer, which we all are. I'm going to guess that you're a pretty good parent. Hold on while I grab my children and ask them. <laughs> I'm a parent of three. And, you know, it's like they teach me more than I think I've taught them. But, you know, I think one of the best things we can do for our kids is to cut through the bullshit and to be honest and speak the truth and let them be their authentic selves. How do you bring kind of the lessons learned in your own life to parenting when it comes to kind of truth telling and emotional honesty? I think like a lot of parents, you know, it's the way you have people be honest is that you figure out how you're going to behave when people are honest with you. My parents were very strict and would kind of freak out if they heard something that they didn't like. So, you know, so you learn pretty early on to like not tell people things when it's going to upset them. Whereas I really think we did a pretty good job of sort of saying, whatever you tell me, I'm going to be okay with it. Now we might have to sit down and work out how we move forward. And partly because we're of the generation of, if you remember, mothers against drunk driving, right? There was this idea that kids would rather get in a car and drive home drunk or get with friends than to call their own parents and tell them, I'm at a party, I have been drinking, I am underage, I know I shouldn't have been, understanding fully, like your parents would rather see you alive. They much prefer to see you alive and you survive and yell at you later than to have you risk something, right? I would never have been a millionaire called my parents to say, I've been drinking at a party and never, you know, but I knew that for my kids, I wanted them to be able to say, mom, this thing happened. Can you help me? And then we will figure out the punishment or whatever consequences down the line. But in terms of safety that they always knew that I'm on hashtag team kid, you know? So I think a lot of our parenting and my parents were great parents. They're amazing. They're just very strict and they were of a different era. I think that in that way, I'm different than my parents. And I think that we've at least taught them that honesty is a plus, that being a truth teller. I think the more important conversation I've had with them is about figuring out your path and figuring out the way you learn, the things you like, what you want to do. Like that actually is the hardest part of it all. For me, cracking the nut of how I like to work and then being comfortable in it. I am a list maker. I am a post-it sticker and everyone will make fun of me and laugh at me and what, you know, but I, there I am. This is how I work. This is how I learn. This is how I need to be. I need this much sleep. I need this much workout, you know, and not allowing people to take that from me. I think I model, even though your children will mock you, I think I model pretty well the idea of, I know my route to success. I know the sleep I need. I know if I stay out tonight, I won't get this done. I know how much time I need to prep for an event. So I think I've modeled that for them. And that actually is something I'm pretty proud of because it took me a long time to figure out what do you need to be successful? How do you work best? Are you a morning person or are you a night person? How do you read? How do you execute on your homework? Everyone in my family makes fun of me because I have lists going. I have lists for today, lists for later today, lists for the week, lists for tomorrow, lists for every day of the week. You know, and then I combine at the end of a week, I combine all my lists. <laughs> and now generally, I kind of get through most of it. And they all, you know, everyone thinks it's funny. But I'm like, it works for me. It works really well for me. That probably is the biggest lesson that I've tried to teach them that, you know, not everybody's going to memorize vocabulary words in one go. I could do that. I was very good at that kind of stuff. That's just not for everybody. So figure out how you learn and then exploit 
that knowledge to make sure you're successful. My kids make fun of me all the time. I am passionate about mental health and sort of weaving it into the conversation about our whole health. And so I have this poster on my wall in my home office that's the periodic table of emotions, you know, the periodic table, of the elements, and it's the periodic table of the emotions, the goal being to kind of break down the simplified notion of having sort of three basic emotions, happy, sad, mad. So it's like the whole rainbow of emotions, indignation to jealousy to envy and, you know, they'll tease me about it. They're like, oh, my God, mom, that table is so, it's so ridiculous. And then I find them bringing their friends over and showing it to them. And I hear them in the other room talking about, oh, maybe I'm not angry. Maybe I'm actually afraid. And I'm like, see, a girlfriend of mine who has adolescence is a doctor who focuses on adolescence. And every time her kids go through stages, and I think they're like 13 and 15. And she was saying that, you know, they'll do something and they'll expect her to be mad or whatever. And she's like, oh, you're right on schedule for <laughs> doctors. Uh. Talk to me about how you maintain your health mentally and physically. Like, what are your routines? I mean, you make lists. It sounds like you prioritize sleep. Like, what do you do to be healthy mentally and physically yourself? I think for organization, I make lists. I'm a great list maker and I stick to them. So that's amazing. I also jettison stuff I'm not going to do. I do not like to cook. And I used to put it on my list every year, resolutions, learn to cook. And I was like, you know what? I freaking hate cooking. So I love eating. I love doing dishes. And so my swap was, I will do the dishes. If everybody cooks or other people cook, I'll get the pizza. I will do the dishes. I will set the table. I just don't enjoy cooking. So jettisoning things that you don't like to do. And also the people who you recognize around you are a little bit energy suckers, you know, really recognizing like, yeah, that person has to go. I just don't feel good about myself when I hang out with them. So I think that those were two kind of structural things that I've done. I try to get sleep. I do prioritize it, although I would say I don't sleep a lot because I travel a lot. So sometimes it's just kind of all over the place. For example, I was in LA working, took the red eye, slept on the plane probably for about four and a half hours, landed, went to the hotel, napped for about two hours. It was my daughter's parent weekend at school. You just got to get it done. So I wouldn't say that's like great sleep, but I did everything I could to get as much as I can. I've started really thinking about the exercises that work for me and also looking at things that undermine it. So for example, I started Pilates, which I like a lot. I try to go horseback riding almost every day if I can. It's getting cold and I'm traveling a lot, so I haven't done that lately. I've tried to like solve problems. You know, what do I need to eat in the morning? And I'm a routine person. Again, I think knowing yourself is such a big benefit in anything that you're trying to do to stay on a path. So for example, when I travel, I just know I'm going to gain five pounds. I'm going to eat a lot. I'm going to, you know, whatever. So I try to have, I usually have yogurt, nuts, and raisins every morning. I love it. I buy a little cup, you know, but uh, super easy. You can pretty much get that anywhere. You land somewhere, you can kind of get it. Leave in a terrible hotel for the most part, you know, has some kind of like Greek yogurt and you can beg them for nuts and maybe they have raisins in the back. And so I try to like, okay, that's a doable thing in the reality that is my life. And I've tried to do it when it came to get a smoothie. Well, guess what? Most places when you're shooting, they will not make a smoothie for you. You know, I'm not in a fancy hotel. Yes, if I'm on vacation somewhere fabulous, sure. But in real life, no. And so then I end up having something generally unhealthy if I can't solve it. So solving that problem really teed me up to be more successful. I found a little Pilates place. I forget what they're called. Club Pilates. They're all over the country, right? So I land from wherever I'm doing and I find an hour where I can go to Club Pilates San Francisco or Club Pilates wherever, Chicago, and get a class in. Is it the greatest thing ever? No, but it keeps me on track and it's the best that I can do. 
And so I think like that to me all stems from knowing yourself. I know if I start the morning with a giant deep fried breakfast, by noon, I'm having a cosmopolitan by 10 p.m. You know, it's just a mess. So I really try to make healthy, smart choices. But again, it's a function of growing up as well. You just get better at figuring out what you need and how to deal with it. And then, of course, I think the other thing in terms of just health for me is I'm pretty good about consistent doctor, dentist. I've started doing January, June, right? So I don't have to even think about it. I know I've got this in January. And then again, the second appointment in June so that, you know, I never forget. And just tracking stuff and having a good assistant who is, you know, able to really like keep me on track to get that stuff done. It really comes back down to those to-do lists, right? It's about, I'm a person who likes to be organized in her head. Ergo, I need to have what I'm thinking about eating. I need to have my day planned out. I need to have my exercise planned out. I need to have everything planned out. And then it doesn't go off the rails. And then when it does go off the rails, because we've been promoting our doc this past week, you know, and it's just crazy busy, you know, you pick up on Monday and you start again. <laughs> You're like, oh, let's pick it up and, and get the train back on the tracks. It's so refreshing to hear you talk about that sort of acceptance of imperfection, like that you just do the best you can, you prioritize yourself, but you also, you know, you make sure to go to the parents weekend. You're not so rigid that if you eat a fried breakfast, you're going to like punish yourself later. Or maybe you do and you just haven't told me. It's a combination. I know when I'm traveling, I will be, for example, I'll be in Atlanta tonight. I'll be in D.C. on Wednesday. DC on Thursday, DC on Friday. I'll be in Colorado on Saturday. I'll be in West Palm Beach on Sunday, Monday too, right? So at some point, I know there's going to be at some point where you're just sitting down eating Swedish fish and it's going to be the best that you can do, right? And so I, I have really found, again, back to that healthy breakfast. When I have that in the morning, I get up and I start with that. It's like, okay, we're back on track. Let's work out in the gym for 30 minutes. Let's do the best we can. I know the reality of travel. And again, when you know yourself, you know, this is not going to be the week where you are living your best life and you're working out every day and it's a killer and you feel good. I took a vacation uh, not too long ago and I was like, every day I went to Pilates every day. I just really did go riding every day, Pilates every day. That was my exercise. And I'll give you one other tip that has really worked for me. My husband is a vacationer who loves to just go, bring nothing, sits on a chair, sits in the sun, reads a book. I hate that vacation. I'm a vacationer who needs to cross stuff off her list. And one year, I actually did what Brad did. I was like, you know, I'm going to try it. And it was miserable because it's not who I am. I need to finish a vacation feeling like I worked out. I ate well. I ran every day. I did this. I did that. Plus, I enrolled the kids in this. I got this done. And then I cleaned out my handbag and I organized this. <laughs> I, it's just who I am. And not knocking things off that list is actually quite stressful for me because I have to do it at some point. I'd rather do it on a beach chair by a really nice pool sipping a margarita than to do it squished into a day when I forgot to do everything. I stopped worrying about people not liking that. And I would just say, you know what? It works for me. I bring a bag of work that I have to get done or get through. I spend the entire time going through it. I love it. And it's not for everybody. Figuring out what works for you is kind of the $64,000 question. It really is. People ask me all the time, what diet should I do? What exercise should I do? How much sleep do I need? And I often give them a very unsatisfying answer. And I say, it's really what works for you. You have to accept the realities of your life, your work, your parenting, and find a way that is reasonable and realistic and sustainable. It can't be rigid because if we're rigid, then you inevitably fail and then you're going to feel guilty. And I think one of the benefits of getting older, as you just said, is that sort of acceptance of reality and not having to apologize for not doing something like the way your husband does. 
there's nothing more satisfying than cleaning out your purse. I have to say, like I get deep satisfaction from cleaning out my purse. That is to me something I would love to do on vacation. <laughs> I literally bring a roller bag because often the work that I have to do is people have sent scripts. People have sent books to review. People have, you know, so you have this bag of stuff that's not urgent, but it has to get done. And I actually started bringing an extra giant roller bag of stuff. And nothing is better. You think cleaning out your purse is good. Nothing is better than taking that bag that has been sitting in your office for six months and hauling it in and just ripping through it and getting done everything that you needed to get done. You feel really accomplished. And so, yeah, that to me was, was great. What happens is everybody makes fun of you. And then the next thing is like, that's how mom works. That works for mom. Like everybody gets it. And that's fine. That's okay. So Lynette, I know you have a million places to be. You're promoting this documentary. You're crisscrossing the country. I can't thank you enough for joining me to talk about race in America, covering important historical figures with accuracy and integrity, and for sharing your life hacks with <laughs> me. Whether you know it or not, you're a role model for young women, and I think young women of color, and I think humans. I've watched your trajectory over the course of the last many decades, and it's been such an inspiration to see you step outside the box of sort of mainstream media and grow this production company and then take on really challenging topics like you have. I wonder if you have sort of one final like word of wisdom to somebody you were mentoring who is starting up in this field and feeling kind of defeated by either the lack of diversity in the newsroom or just what's my path? What mentorship advice would you give to someone in that position? I often tell, let's say, young women of color, but really for anybody, you have to figure out a way to navigate both understanding the reality. There are X number of people of color here, and that matters to me. Or there are no women who have ever been in charge of this division. Or people just don't move in and out of this job. That's the reality. But then also understand that you can forge your own path, right? So that you have to make sure that reality doesn't sit on top of you, that you actually can choose to get great where you are and then move on to something else. Like that to me was always, you know, build your resume, put your head down, get the work done, do really well. And then say either, you know, you get an opportunity there or you jump somewhere else and not sort of taking the weight of there's never, ever been a woman who's done blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, could be you. Don't trick yourself into thinking the reality is not the reality, but understanding that you can make your own reality as well. And I think that that to me has been very helpful. I'm a big believer in just understand where you are and what you're doing and get a lot of feedback, you know, work hard, make lists. What do you want to accomplish this week? What do you want to accomplish this month? What do you need to have done by the end of the year? Because at some point you're going to look at your list and you're like, I got a lot done. I got a lot done this week. I got a lot done today. I got a lot done this year. Now, where do I want to go? What opportunities do I want to take advantage of? Like, that's a pretty amazing thing. So I think for everything, you know, make a list, be strategic, and also recognize you don't have to carry the burdens of the world with you. You have to understand them. You certainly should be knowledgeable about them, but you don't have to carry them on your back in a backpack and hold them through your day. I think those are great lessons. I'm going to take some of those life hacks you just listed and write my own list, the Soledad list. You know, you've given us some really, really good advice and for listeners, I think I can say that this documentary is something that everybody has to watch. It's extraordinary. It's a must-see. So, Soledad, thank you so much for joining me today and for sharing a little bit of your personal life and in your professional life together. Thank you for having me. Anybody who wants to see our doc, it's streaming on Peacock right now, just as an FYI, so you should check it out. Love it. Thank you, Soledad. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thanks, Lucy. Take care. Thank you all for listening to Beyond the Prescription. 
please don't forget to subscribe, like, download, and share the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you catch your podcasts. I'd be thrilled if you like this episode to rate and review it. And if you have a comment or question, please drop us a line at info at lucymcbride.com. The views expressed on this show are entirely my own and do not constitute medical advice for individuals. That should be obtained from your personal physician. Beyond the Prescription is produced at Podville Media in Washington, D.C.